Welcome to the Excavation Safety Alliance Town Hall. What are the best practices for preventing damage to electric cables above and below ground? Hosted by Infrastructure Resources. My name is Whitney Price and I'm the VP of Operations for IR. Our ESA Town Halls are an open forum to discuss concerns and present potential solutions to improve damage prevention and excavation safety. A recording of the Town Hall will be posted on the Excavation Safety Alliance website along with a brief blog post. We will also post the chat, so if you do not want your comment or name included, please indicate that with your comment. We will wrap up around 1130 Central, but we will continue with coffee and questions for those who would like to stay on for a few extra minutes. If you have a question during the town hall, please type it into the chat box or click the raise hand icon. Give us a couple seconds and we will give you permission to unmute yourself. To unmute, simply click on the microphone icon. Today, today's meeting is meant to be a discussion and you're all encouraged to ask questions and share solutions. Please try to keep your comments brief to allow others time to interact. Now I will let Mike Sullivan introduce himself and all of our panelists here today. Mike. Thanks very much. Good morning, everybody. I'm Mike Sullivan. I'm the president of Utility Safety Partners. Uh, that's the unified result of Alberta One Call Corporation, the Alberta Common Ground Alliance, and the Where's the Line campaign here in Alberta unifying uh, a little over a, a year ago. And I'm honored to moderate today's discussion. Now with me today are our panelists. So uh, we have Kelly Hines. She's the Senior Claims Case Manager for, with ComEd. We have Glenn Cookie Cook, Principal Community Safety Specialist with Ergon Energy. And it's uh, 1.30 a.m. in Queensland, by the way. So thanks, Cookie, for being there for us. We have we have two-time American Olympian, electrical accident survivor, and motivational and safety spokesperson for Georgia 811, Cliff Meidel. Welcome, Cliff. Good morning. And we also have my colleague, uh, Cher Kirk. She's the Operations Director for Utility Safety Partners. And I'm, I'm not sure if we've been able to fix her camera and mic. Apparently, they were disabled, so I'm, I'm not sure if we can get that going here. So hopefully, that'll happen here pretty quick. Um, today's discussion, as discussed, as we mentioned already, are discussing the best practices for prevent, preventing damage to electrical cables and under uh, above and below ground. Now, when we talk about prevention, the prevention element of the discussion, before we get into that, I want to get into the context of, of um, damages that are incidents that are occurring to electrical cables, whether that be below or, or above ground. So I want to ask our panelists, first of all, I mean, how are these utilities being damaged. This is a very general context. So uh, Cookie, we'll go to you first. Uh, how are these utilities being damaged in, in Queensland? Well, in Queensland, Australia, or even just Australia, um, we have uh, basically 10 contacts per day in Australia with overhead and underground power lines. But it is a basically 25 to one ratio. So 25 overhead power lines will be contacted um, and one underground, so it's an enormous amount of overhead power line contacts. So, yes, it's just alarming how people absolutely do not see the lines um, when they're working near them. Yeah, yeah and this is predominantly agricultural, or how how are the uh, what's the activity when these are being damaged? Oh, look, it, it's primarily uh, road transport, so trucking. So you, okay. you've got. Uh, trucks side swiping poles, 
hitting overhead wires with, with high loads is, is primarily what's what's happening. But in the construction and agricultural sector, it's it's quite high as well. So uh, basically, uh, excavators, cranes, uh, concrete pumps in in the in the uh, in the construction um, right. space. But in the agriculture, we've got obviously spray rigs. We've got a lot of cane um, in Queensland, so uh, sugar cane. So we have a lot, a lot of uh, sugarcane incidents from about um, May every year through to December. Massive amounts of uh, contact with uh, cane harvesting and cane haul-out activities. So, um, yeah, and it's hard to change the culture of those guys in the agricultural sector because they've been doing the yep. same thing for a lot of years. But um, we've certainly got a, a, a few more things in, in place, which we'll talk about. Okay. Kelly, how about, uh, are you seeing similar? where you are in terms of how these utilities are being damaged? Yeah, Mike, uh, we basically have a 70-30 split. So 70% of our damages are caused by the excavator, 30% by our locators. And then locators obviously failing either to mark the facility or mismarking the facility. And then for the excavator, 56% of those damages that are excavator at fault are marked accurately. So those are facilities that are accurately marked where the uh, excavator failed to do any potholing or failed to pothole down to the depth of their excavation within the tolerance zone. Um, as far as overhead contacts, we're kind of the opposite of cookie. Uh, we, um, you know, anywhere, I just wrote down some numbers. Yesterday we had seven dig-ins and zero contacts, overhead contacts. But we did, we go usually one to 10 underground damages per day. And I would say maybe one to three uh, contacts per week, overhead contacts per week. Um, we don't normally have a whole lot of underground contact. Uh, once, the once the damage occurs, usually the fuse is blown or um, they sever the, the the facility completely, wherein you know there's it, there's no longer a hazard there. But uh, we still continue to have those same issues as well. And a majority of those overhead contacts are um, you know people working around our overhead lines, whether they be in right. a backhoe or you know, somebody up on their rooftop cleaning the gutters. Um, you know, it's any number of reasons why we have overhead contact. Yeah. Thanks. And Cliff, here are you seeing similar reasons as why these are being damaged? These utilities are being damaged. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things, as, as Kelly had said, that, uh, you know, I think a lot of it's a failure to be able to understand uh, what lies beneath the ground. And that's why it's so important for us to be able to, you know, develop this unified awareness globally about how important damage prevention is. Uh, we see a lot. I'm in Los Angeles, so a lot uh, of the awareness is done, like, for example, side freeway billboards and so on and so forth, where, you know, you have to look out for overhead power lines. So there is some awareness to that. But I think that, uh, you know, globally, and especially here in the United States, uh, the awareness has really uh, developed tremendously over the years. Uh, and the whole 811 uh, call before you dig, contact before you dig is really caught on. And uh, I think that over time, uh, on an optimistic viewpoint, uh, you know, slowly, I mean, I think each and every one of us has the same goal that zero damages out there in the field. And we don't want any incidents, especially as everybody knows, when it comes to electrical accidents, uh, they're much different than other ones. It, it, things yeah. happen very quickly and, and the outcomes can be very bad. Thanks, Cliff. And sure, right here at home in Alberta, um, and we've been capturing, or where's the line has been capturing contacts with overhead utilities and obviously with buried utilities for years. And we have our contact map, which I'd like to show, but I can't because I'm having issues with my teams right now. But 
are you experiencing, are we experiencing similar here in terms of contacts with the buried and overhead utilities? Yeah, definitely. And I, I agree that the awareness is growing both uh, with Click Before You Dig, 811, all those campaigns. We're definitely reaching a wider audience to be more aware. Um, now, we're starting to take the the overhead lines more into that fold, whereas before they were sort of on the outside of the bigger damage prevention digging kind of community. But, you know, it's the same people, it's the same asset, and, and certainly it has the same devastating impact um, as an underground line. But I agree with, uh, with what's been said is that the awareness is great. I think we're reaching a lot more people, but they're not following uh, the best practices after they get the locates they're like i've got my locates i'm going to do my digging but the the lack of potholing the not safe approaches the you know not paying attention to the height of their agricultural equipment is a big one here uh, it's a lot of agriculture hits on overhead contacts uh, so it's just a matter of you know fine tuning we got to keep the awareness going but we've also got to fine tune the information that's going out find out where why these hits are happening and then target that information out to the excavators to say you know it's not enough to get your locate request you've you've got to ah there you go you've got to hand dig safely before you get in there with your heavy equipment and i, I there's still a big missing piece there yep okay so we're, I mean, we're experiencing obviously damages regardless of where we live and whether it's in north america or whether it's a uh, across the pond, uh, down under, damages are occurring where there's been a variety of ways over the decades that we've attempted to uh, prevent damage. Um, but it's these things continue to happen. It's an evolving practice and damage prevention, it, it never really ends. We're always improving our methods. So looking at this, you know, in, in our discussion today, I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, and before we just get into our questions, though, um, how are we doing it now in terms of damage prevention? How were we doing it then, before now, in terms of damage prevention? How are we doing it now? And how are our damage prevention practices, how are they evolving? And uh, Cookie, I'll go back to you. I mean, you, you've been in this a while. You've seen the evolution. You have some gray hair. <laughs> <laughs> Look, um, certainly here in Australia, we have what we used to call it dog before you dig. It's just recently changed to before you dig Australia. But, you know, what I found when I first got into this role was, you know, I've spoken to thousands of people that have hit overhead power lines in particular, and they all had a very similar reason. So I'd ask them, so tell me what happened. And they all said, I 100% knew it was there, but I just didn't see it. <clears throat> so basically, sort of set people up to fail, businesses can set people up to fail by sending them out and expecting people to see the overhead power line because uh, it's a human factor that our eyes and our brain don't work that well together, right? So I always ask people in a, in a like I'll do a, a talk this morning when I, after I have another sleep <laughs> uh, about, you know, <clears throat> what it is that they, like how many power lines that they see on the way to the, to the event. And they'll sit there and go, how did Cookie know I didn't see any power lines? You know, I go on holidays and um, my wife and family laugh at me because I take photos of power lines, right? So <laughs> that's the industry I'm in. But people in the agricultural and construction sector absolutely do not see overhead power lines through a thing called inattentional blindness. So yeah. it, 
you have to bring the uh, hazard front of mind for people uh, to, to get them to make sure that they don't hit it and have a plan. Like people 100% do not have a plan to work the overhead power lines. They expect people to see it and they just don't. Uh, when it comes to underground, people go, oh, I need to do an 811 or one call or, or, or before you dig. So that is the start of a very simple plan and it's effective. By just doing that, you've already reduced the incidence of, of, um, uh, of hitting something. And that's where we come up with the lookupandlive.com concept. So we, we map all power lines here uh, in, in Queensland and, and Eastern Australia. Now we've, we've added in a few more states. That gives people the ability to come up with a very simple plan and it's reduced incidence by 50% in the, in the um, agricultural sector within the first five years now. Uh, and and 50% in the construction sector as well. It's it's absolutely working. Thanks, uh, Kelly. I'll go to you in in terms of the evolution of damage prevention. Uh, you know, the the US has been somewhat of a juggernaut in terms of uh, changing uh, that paradigm shift and and having that brand, the 811 brand, uh, which really was a game changer. So you know, there's been a, an evolving story for damage prevention in the US predominantly. Um, how do you see that being positive? Obviously, it has, is it reducing damages uh, over, the, over the span of time, particularly to uh, electrical cables in this yes. case? Yeah, I was just going over our numbers, our August numbers uh, with my leadership this morning, and you know we're seeing a decrease in damages. And I think a lot of that has to do with the awareness, <coughs> right? <clears throat> Having the 811, Illinois is a little bit different in that we don't have 811 Illinois or 811 is Julie. And <clears throat> the reason that is, is because everybody equates Julie to digging, right? Did It's more of a, uh, did you Julie it, right? As opposed to calling 811, did you call Julie? Has Julie been out here? And so it's, I think, uh, familiarizing uh, people and educating people on obviously the need to call in for uh, a call in for your locates prior to your excavation. But I think initially we may have been working in silos wherein the member companies weren't really all that engaged with the 811 process, right? Mm -hmm. We got the messages <clears throat> from the 811 call center, but that's about the extent of it. Before I started in damage prevention 20 years ago, um, I really wasn't all that familiar with Julie or the need to call 811. And, you know, our team has really uh, done a great job at going out and increasing increasing that awareness, not only working alongside 811, but also working alongside the member companies and working alongside the locate vendors who've been really beneficial in um, you know, displaying the information about 811, but then also having that those conversations with the excavators out there. It's not just the single phone call that you make. You know, these are ongoing projects. You need um, ongoing communication with not only 811, but with your locator. So I think for us, it's all it's been about education, right? The awareness of the need to call in and um, the reasons why you need to continue to call in. Um, I think those have been the most beneficial for us. Thanks, Kelly. And, and Cliff, I mean, your role as a spokesperson, you're, you're doing a, a tremendous amount of work in terms of helping people shift their, their paradigm. And, you know, whether it's look up and live or know what's below, um, that is a big piece of, of your of your work and that it, how you're influencing that change. Are you seeing a positive change in relation to everything over the decades that has gone on? 
I think uh, I think I would like to say yes. <laughs> I mean, that's the uh, my best answer. But uh, the thing about it is, is that you know I've always had the mindset that. Uh, when whether you're speaking to an audience, you know, I always like to uh, speak to boots on the ground because it's the most impactful. Yeah. It's our yeah. workers out there, the guys that are out there, the gals that are out there day to day uh, working out in the in the trenches or whether they're out in, a, uh, you know, working overhead or whatever they're doing uh, is to be able to create that impact. And, and a lot of it is, you know, through sharing stories and things of that nature. Nobody wants to hear about the severity of it because there's a massive disruption, as we all know, not only to the individual or the survivor, especially around electrical incidents, we would like to say survivor, uh, but it's it's a huge cultural effect. You know, it's a fracturing of a culture. You know, we worked so hard in damage prevention and occupational health and safety in that matter on a standpoint uh, to really develop these systems and these tools and these education processes to make sure that everybody's out there working safe. So there's an enormous amount of infrastructure preparedness and all that that goes into that. And when we have an incident uh, that happens, we always say one's too many. But so on that standpoint, I always like to say, if I can inspire people to, you know, to go out there and work safe, I've done my job. But at Georgia 811, uh, you know, we've gone out every April. We do our media tour that we have for the safe digging month of April. And we go out there and we hit the homeowners uh, and we hit the construction companies through doing advertisement on radio, TV, uh, and try to do it live as much as we can so we can create a tangibility for other people to realize, oh, wow, this is what this actually is. And so it really makes that connection uh, of that awareness. But, you know, going back to what our panel members said before, you know, what's the root cause? <laughs> We're seeing a lot of reoccurrences. So, uh, but the thing about it is, is you can't stop the fight. You know, you got to keep going and pushing and pushing and pushing. Uh, and then as we go and mature, uh, we learn uh, where the impact areas are and how we can better serve those uh, areas of awareness and so on and so forth. Thanks, Cliff. And finally, Cher, again, thinking about the evolution of the damage prevention process, um, we've seen a lot of changes here in Canada, particularly in Alberta. We've seen a lot of changes and we're constantly moving forward. Um, maybe you can describe some of that and what the benefits have been to, for example, the online locate request process. Oh, you're muted, Cher. You're right. Didn't want you to hear my dog in the background. Um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, we like you say, we're constantly moving forward and we're constantly looking at ways to continue to move forward here. Um, no one wants to get uh, stuck in the mud, as it were, and keep doing the same things over and over again and and expect that we're going to get better results. So we're always trying new things. And, and uh, as you know, we've moved away from call before you dig to click before you dig because the newer generation uh, is definitely online and they want to just do everything from their phones. They're not interested in calling anyone or speaking to a human. Uh, so we've really put that to the forefront and have developed what we are able to do online and make the process easier for people and um, really narrow down the notifications that we're sending out so it's more targeted. Uh, def definitely there's a lot going on in the industry as far as the process of notification. But what I've really noticed is that some of the changes that we're seeing are more like what were uh, our unification that you were talking about earlier. So we were Alberta One Call. Um, then we joined forces with what was our CGA, our local CGA, um, and the Just community, which was a, a, a joint utility safety team, which was all overhead electrical. So now we've become one organization, a partnership, a true partnership 
uh, of conversations around tables um, to get more information about how to get to the right people, how do we make more of an impact. And one of the things that uh, I, a trend we're definitely seeing is moving from the passive to the active. So instead of being there as a source of information um, or putting out, you know, an ad campaign that's plastered around that says, hey, you know, don't forget to do this. We're really becoming more targeted and more active. Uh, we're seeing more boots on the ground conversations like Cliff was talking about. We've got ambassadors in the field who go to sites to actually have conversations with the people on the ground who are about to do the work. And our current uh, pilot that we're, I'm pretty excited about is the overhead assets, bringing them into the notification center um not just as a because you get the same questions like i'm sure cookie gets all the time it's like well they're overhead power lines you know they're there you see them what's the problem uh, why would you put them in a notification service we can see them but they don't they don't see them and they don't have a plan more importantly so this is a way of us being active and letting the guy the boots on the ground the one with the locate slip in his hand that says okay so there's a, i've got a notice here that says i'm in proximity to an overhead power line and these are the actions that I must take and that's putting the information right in the hands of the guy who's about to start work and that's the best awareness that we can get to as opposed to hoping that he's gone to the site and is aware and looks around and and does his uh, risk assessment so I, I think that's the biggest trend I'm seeing right now is just moving to that more active approach and getting in front of people at the right moment as opposed to they were educated but you know they forget these things when they're in the ground and they have other things on their mind Right, sure. Now, so clearly we have the right panelists for today's discussion, and we could go on and on. And they could really dominate this discussion, which we're going to do. But I want to try and get to some of the questions we're we're getting right now. And uh, so, Cookie, I think of you when I see this question because it's talking about uh, permanent markers for uh, for electrical utilities. Um, the first, the question is that many electrical utilities aren't using permanent markers and the reason so because is that they were told they would have to mark all of the cables and uh, the person also mentions the same problem in georgia with paint and indicating how many lines were in a duct and nothing or sorry noting changes along the route um when i i know in advance of our discussion today and in preparation for today's discussion um you provided a a, a gif uh, file of a uh, overhead electrical cable marker, which is a little different than what we've seen here in North America. How has that changed things in terms of generating more visual awareness for, again, overhead lines that we just, you know, we just don't see for some reason? Uh, the, the, they're called a rotor marker. So you can probably see it on your screen there now. I sit on the wire and, and just spin in the breeze. So. Well, I was talking about the uh, inattentional blindness before, which is basically that human factor that just doesn't doesn't allow your eyes to see stuff. Your brain's just conserving energy, and it's it's trained you to to not worry about overhead power lines, right? So, in in Australia and New Zealand, in the last twenty years, there's been 141 electrocutions. All right, 90 percent of those electrocutions. Were, were caused by accidental contact with overhead power lines, 90%. All right, so basically, you know, when we came up with the Look Up and Live app, which is the mapping you can sort of see on the left there, uh, when we partnered with the rotor markers five years ago, 
they've certainly worked worked very well together. Um, just it's just that spinning motion. It's it's sort of back to the caveman days when you see something in you know you're foraging for food and you see something in your peripheral vision, your brain goes, that's interesting, that's important, and you look at it. What these things do is just bring the overhead power line front of mind and it changes drivers' behaviours or, or, or operators' behaviours straight away because nobody hits power lines on purpose, right? But it, it is absolutely that they didn't see it. So bringing it front of mind goes, whoa, okay, power line, what am I supposed to do again? Where's my safety observer? Um, you know, what controls have we got in place? So, you know, if, if you're using the hierarchy control for safety, a rotor marker is, you know, an administration control, but it's a really effective one. We've, we've actually got 7,000 rotor markers up in uh, Queensland and New South Wales, which is basically on the east side of Australia, east coast of Australia, 7,000, and in five years we haven't had one overhead power line contact with a rotor marker installed. Um, whereas we've had ones with, we've had like temporary flagging that we used to have on it, they still get hit. Um, yep. There's no not enough movement for, for people to actually change their behaviour. And now the location of where these markers are being placed, is it predominantly where, for example, um, inspection may be, you know, for, for pipeline crossings where you're going to have aerial traffic, is that predominantly where they are? I mean, it's not everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So we predominantly, well, I actually had to sit on Australian Standards Committee to, to change the standard to allow the rudder marker to go on because the, the, the standard was quite prescriptive on, on what needed to go on there. So there was mainly balls or spheres was the main um, uh, things that we were marking with for aviation in particular. But the aviation wasn't the problem. Right? The problem was people on the ground working um, hit way more than than anyone in the aviation industry. So predominantly we started using them in the agricultural sector because uh, in the agricultural sector, the basically is one person operating like a spray rig, for example. They don't have someone watching them, so they get too close and hit. Whereas the rotor marker absolutely changes their perception of what's around them. So they, they, they absolutely change their behavior, even though they don't have that extra requirement of using a safety observer. Because in Australia, basically, if you're within, <coughs> if your piece of machinery can reach uh, a three meter exclusion zone, you must have a safety observer watching you. But being an extra resource, what do you reckon we uh, we skip on? It's that extra person, right? So, and yeah. that's part of the reason why people at power lines is they're not operating with the controls required. Yep. So yeah, to and answer your question there, Mike, it was um, predominantly agriculture uh, and we incentivize these rotor markers. They're around $170. Um, but as a company, we've incentivized them as a $100 and we install them for free. So up to 10 markers per, per property, so to speak, or per construction site, you can get 10 markers, so $1,000 fully installed. and just gives people that opportunity to put a control in place, an effective control in place to, to change operator behavior. Uh, because just to install them, you know, it could be thousands and thousands of dollars, but like we've worked out there's nearly a hundred million in overhead um, costs to our business every year from accidental contact with power lines. And it's really hard to recover any of those costs. So I convinced our business to do our 50% and stall them for nothing and, and incentivize those markers to change culture. To 
it really is changing culture. Like, yeah. like even the, the overhead power line contacts, our guys in the field weren't reporting them because they just went, oh, it's an accident. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's a preventable accident. We need to know about it. Yeah. And just a related question before I move on to somebody else here. The related question is, is there any pushback from residents? I don't think there is, obviously, from what you're saying, but is there any pushback from residents uh, having those rotomarkers now in their view? Because I can imagine as a, as a homeowner, as a landowner, a rancher or whatever, you see this thing constantly moving, it becomes potentially an annoyance. Oh, look, um, people are requesting them. I've got a couple of requests there at the moment that I know of where people are ordering over 200 markers for for their properties because they do um, like helicopter mustering of cattle, for example. So they're mustering, they're, they're loading cattle onto trucks. They're doing aerial application with, um, uh, you know, uh, fixed wing planes or helicopters, but then they're also doing the work uh, in the field from a you know a harvester or or a, or a spray rig, they need that stuff there. So they're absolutely loving them because they go these work um, for the construction sector. We 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 put them up and then they're like a temporary marker, right? So we'll put them up for the length of the construction, then we pull them down. So yeah. uh, if there's you know one, once they've done their job, we can pull them back down again. So but no, have have had no complaints, mate. Not, not That's one. That's good. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Um, just I actually had one. I've got, got a bit of a funny story here, mate. We had a, a complaint one day. I should say we haven't had a complaint, but someone said that someone had put a Christmas uh, decoration up on one of our lines and one of our guys went out to check and he got there. Here's a red and white rotating marker. It's like someone someone thought it was a Christmas decoration. Oh, that's <laughs> no nice. <laughs> um, just a general question. And this is looking at from uh, municipal, uh, perhaps utility locating coordination is there coordination with municipal paving or graveling programs uh, to ensure clearances to overhead power lines are maintained after road work? Uh, Kelly, I'm going to put you on the spot here. You know, as a uh, from, from a claims perspective, are you seeing this at all? Is there that coordination, or is there a lack of coordination? That's a great question, Mike. I never thought of it that way. Um, to my understanding, um, no, we don't have anything like that. Um, and I think that's worth looking into. I mean, we we certainly work well. You know, we don't necessarily work alongside folks that are just repaving. Um, but new road configuration, things like that, we certainly work through our public relocation program to work with those excavators and, and designers, engineers to understand what type of work they're doing and how that work is going to affect uh, or conflict with the uh, facilities that we already currently have present. Um, but <clears throat> changes in the grade, no, um, to my knowledge, we don't have a program like that. Okay. How about Cliff? Are you aware of anything like that in, in your travels? When you, you've done a lot of presenting, obviously not just in, in uh, Georgia but, or California, but all over the map. Have you heard of any location or sorry, municipal coordination councils that would do that? Uh, I have. Uh, I have not. I, I don't know if I could speak as an expert on that. Uh, I haven't seen any of that. I've have done uh, some presentations across the board to uh, you know paving companies and things of that nature. And and most of it, in my experiences, were you know focused on what was beneath the ground in, instead of overhead. Yeah. Yep. And sure, I know there used to be a utility locating coordination council in Alberta. Now I don't know if that is. I should know, but I don't think that is uh, any longer a thing. You're you're on mute again. <laughs> 
You gotta watch that button. Um, no, that's no longer a thing. And, and to my knowledge, there isn't anything. Uh, certainly they coordinate <coughs> line assignments and things like that. Um, but overhead, I think, kind of gets forgotten about maybe with the grading. Interesting yeah, question. Think, yeah, it is a good question. We, we uh, certainly see the same thing. Mike, Mike in, in Australia here, we, we have many contacts where, or even many uh, sites that have been built up uh, quite high and, and have brought our power lines below the statutory height. So I do a lot of work with civil construction companies to try and get them to use the look up and live at to, um, you know, uh, as a, you know, a planning tool, like be a year out, either get the lines raised or removed so they're not there when they turn up to start construction um, or think about how high they're going to raise it. But yeah, it happens uh, an awful lot. Okay, and I have another question. This is another topic, but it's it's one that will definitely come up uh, probably a couple of times. Um, for those who aren't using the system, for those who aren't using calling 811, who don't click before they dig, repeat offenders, what are the penalties for doing so? Um, you know, there is, in Canada, there is only one province that has comprehensive damage prevention legislation, um, and we're working on it here, and other provinces are doing the same thing. But in the U.S., there is that damage prevention legislation. There are penalties. What's happening? And, and Kelly, I'll go to you for that. What What is the, and I love this, what's the stick when the carrot isn't working? <laughs> we have a commission, our Illinois Commerce Commission, that is our enforcement mechanism to our Illinois uh, Underground Damage Prevention Act. Um, and ultimately, it takes the member company to turn that excavator in. Um, in order for that to occur. Um, the ICC isn't normally out there. Well, I don't want to say they're not normally out there because they do have investigators that are out in the field. Um, it, it really takes the member companies and our uh, philosophy is that we would prefer to try to work with the contractor. Most of the, um, you know, I gave you those statistics of 57% of the 70% of the damages that the excavators are at fault. 20 to 25% of our damages are due to no call to Julie, um, just yeah. failing to make that phone call. So a lot of those are one-offs, right? So we'll work with that contractor and we'll never see that contractor again show up on that list of not calling in. So, <clears throat> you know, if we do find habitual offenders, those are the folks that we're going to target and that we're going to look to file a complaint on with the Illinois Commerce Commission. Um, but those are few and far between. Um, <clears throat> the only real reporting that we do is when there is an injury. Um, again, our, our thought process is let's work alongside the excavator, make sure that they understand what their responsibilities are, that um, they understand the fines and penalties, and there, there can be fines up to $5,000 for failure to call in for a locate request. So again, we, we really want to try to work with that excavator to make sure that they understand what their responsibilities are, but we also want to provide them a contact. You know, if you're having problems with getting the locators out to the job site, give us a call, let us know. You know, make your phone call to 811 to make sure that you follow that process, but then give us a call because we, again, want to work alongside with you. And who is that enforcing body? Is it Julie in this case? It's the Illinois Cookie? Commerce Commission. Okay, it is all right. And uh, Cookie, how about how about you? And when you do have a repeat offender, particularly, you know, you you've done your due diligence, you've 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 done your education, your awareness, uh, and then they go and be your repeat offender. Is there is there a stick in Australia? Uh, there, yeah, yes, there is. So about two years ago. And it doesn't have to be a repeat offender. So we've got laws here in, in Queensland with our electrical safety office, it's called, and our workplace health and safety laws. 
If you breach an exclusion zone, so come within three metres of a power line, you can get a $3,000 fine on the spot. So if someone sees, drives past, gets a photo of the operator, um, they'll get a $3,000 fine. <laughs> Obviously, if they hit a power line, there's, there's, um, they breach the exclusion zone, so they will get an on the spot $3,000 fine. And usually once they investigate that um, contact, they'll get a, a further $3,600 fine for not following their own safe work method statements or safe work procedures um, because they haven't used a safety observer. So they get 6,600 for every contact. And that's been brought in since July 2019 here in, in Queensland. Um, look, I don't think the big stick works. I think it's a bit of engagement and, and obviously having yes. a balance in those two. But um, yeah, it's sort of the big sticks come out for a bit. Um, I'm hoping that the, the awareness stuff builds up again and have because the, the inspectors don't have the ability not to give that fine. So um, if you hit it, you will get a fine. Uh, and now there's been thousands handed out. So. Yep. I think at the I end know. of the day, sorry, that oh, Cliff, Cliff would agree that the, the biggest stick we're all trying to avoid is if they make that mistake and someone gets hurt. Yeah, or absolutely. dies like that's the big stick. Who cares how many money penalties they have? We we yeah. we don't want them to get to that point. So I agree, working with the excavators is always the better way to go. Well, you know, there's a sense of complacency that comes in, right? I mean, whether you're yeah. the excavator uh, or you're, I hate to say this, but even when you're the regulator, uh, I've been the regulator in a previous life, and you know, I worked very hard to push forward uh, enforcement, but the the regulator itself, those above me, had to have that desire, that will, that that vision to see that there was a problem. And I think now, more recently, the regulator for transmission pipelines, transmission electrical utilities here in Canada, has a greater appetite for that. They've introduced administrative administrative monetary penalties, um, which you know, un unfortunately, have been leaning more towards the, the utility owner than the excavator but I, it's going to be going in the right direction eventually um but it there is there has to be a blend um the canadian common ground alliance produced uh, a document a number of years ago for i think it was the nine elements for damage prevention legislation that should be included um and one of the key factors of that in terms of enforcement and penalties the first order of business is always education and awareness has to be part of that enforcement ladder has to be the beginning of that enforcement ladder and never never end and cliff i mean you're you i know you you drive that message home and and as chair mentioned i mean you you were a survivor of uh of an accident that was a very severe accident so you you've actually lived uh the, the circumstances of this yeah, I have. Uh, but I think that, you know, as our panel members had said, you know, one of the most important parts, in my opinion, about the enforcement is the ability to go back and find out why. Uh, why has this happened and, and create that dialogue and that discussion uh, with the with the, the the digging party or whoever it may be, the excavator or the uh, utility owner, at least go out there and be able to have that opportunity and talk about, OK, why did this happen and so on and so forth to create that education awareness. But then you kind of got to go back and say that, you know, we talked a little bit about these repeat offenders. You know, I think that's yeah. kind of like a willful thing. And uh, so, 
you know, how do you uh, enforce that? Uh, sometimes it seems like that they're, you know, skipping away, getting away with stuff uh, and never getting caught and, and things like that. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about being able to educate and 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 hope, you know, I, I don't know if that's the right word to use, but try to develop that awareness. And we're hopefully going to be able to make sure that everybody works safe. So I think it's that constant pursuit that one needs to have. Thanks. Uh, in Canada here, we, we've we've particularly in Alberta, and I know in Ontario as well, some recent studies have confirmed that a locate request made online uh, is will, light, will reduce damages. Uh, we've done a study that locate requests by phone and, and, and online have a, quite a disparity in terms of damages. Cher, can I put you on the spot to talk about that a little bit and why that is the case? Well, I think the most important difference is that when someone is putting in their own locate request online, they're the best person to identify the work area. It's, uh, you know, it's like the telephone game. You're trying to explain over the phone to someone who can't see what you can see, where you're doing the work and describing it on the map. And that person's trying to map it blind uh, without having any idea where you're really doing the work and just... You know, it's certainly the best practice to have the the excavator who's going to do the work uh, map that site because he knows exactly where he's doing. And then you get the most accurate notifications. You're not going to miss anybody because they're going to map where they're working. They're not going to care about who's underground where or trying to avoid or trying to add someone. Uh, they're just going to map the truth, as it were. And I think that's probably the biggest part. That and, you know, and they know what critical notes need to go on the ticket and uh, they're not going to skip anything. They're going to put everything they can think of on the ticket to give the information to the locators uh, that they need. And I, I think that's probably the biggest reason. And in terms of best practice, I know that the Canadian One Call Centres Committee is is revising that section of the Canadian Common Ground Alliance best practices for the One yeah. Call Centre. It's uh, to really identify the best practice, the better practice is online locate requests, click before you dig. Um, it's not only is it available 24-7, as you said, the integrity of the locate request online is superior than the phone, simply because nobody knows better than the excavator where that uh, where their excavation project is taking place. And they can identify yeah, it right not, away. Not taking anything away from the agents who, who take phone calls because they do no, a great job. It's just that's right. a matter of fact that you, if you're the excavator and you can see what you're mapping, that's a lot better than trying to explain it to someone who doesn't know where you're mapping. Yeah. And yeah, so that's in terms of, you know, looking at best practices and practices over the years, we're, we're seeing that in, uh, in, in droves. And just, you know, case in point for Alberta, um, we're seeing our members, uh, we have about 850 <coughs> members and we and our the digging community, they're about 90, almost 99% of all their locate requests are online now. And that is reducing damages, obviously. And, and the fact that members are tightening up their data that they're providing to us as well, uh, they're no longer, um, they're no longer uh, registering their data by grid, but instead by shape files or polygon. That is reducing notifications and reducing costs as well. So it's yeah, and it, and it eases the burden. the uh, The other thing we were talking before about how the how things are evolving, and I think what's really interesting about uh, evolving to the online world is that it's creating unique opportunities that we didn't foresee before. So if if uh, if an excavator puts in an online request, 
they're more likely to make contact with the ex with the locator or the actual uh, utility owner because if they have questions because we didn't put it in like that one call center didn't send it it hasn't been really reviewed and we don't know how accurate it is they're really making the extra effort to connect and have those conversations before the work starts um, that maybe they wouldn't have before where they would have just gone out marked the site and been on their way but now maybe they used a phone call that wasn't there before or a, you know we want to come out and walk the site and make sure that this is what you mapped on your ticket because there's not that third party verifying things for them i think they're being a little more cautious on both sides and uh, and that's certainly showing up in the difference but that's also leading to that more active uh, on our part as well because our agents as they're not getting tied down to so many phone calls the volume of phone calls was getting completely out of control you'd have to have a contact center of 500 people to keep up with it after a while um, so it's great that they're moving more online and that allows our agents that we do have to do things that are more active you know we have a support team now that active like we have a chat team online that engages with people we have a support team that you know makes the effort to have these conversations with people who do call in to answer all their questions and to ask them if they know what they're doing and to ask them if they have any questions whereas before the focus was very much get their information get them off the phone as quickly as you can because we need to keep things rolling for the you know 100 people in line waiting to talk to somebody um so that that's relieved and really changed the attitude in our contact center where our agents are getting more educated themselves and they're passing along that information to homeowners in particular because they're the ones that are still mostly calling i mean we're about 40 45 of homeowners are calling in right or are online so that still means that they're the bulk of our phone calls now and it's great to see them spending the time to actually explain the process and what's a private line and why aren't they marking them my garage power yeah. line and things yeah. that they don't think about so you know again it's pushing us towards a more active uh role in education yep and and as you mentioned you know a, a homeowner they're gonna dig once every 10 years maybe once in a lifetime this isn't what they do for a living so they need that extra time that extra help and you know it really comes down to client services so that's uh i want to make sure we we captured that um i'm going to go back to enforcement for a moment uh we have a question about i think the question is really more so engagement or or success with enforcement policies for habitual offenders we touched on that a little bit but i want to get a little bit deeper into that now uh, this person has had a conversation with their staff and they find that no one really wants to put the effort in to admit, perhaps at the regulatory level, the legislative level, to address habitual offenders. Um, we touched a little bit on that earlier. I'm gonna open up to the panelists. Does anybody wanna take that on? Well, Say, again, I'm sorry, but I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure. You know, certainly that's not part of part of my role. Um, you guys would be better answering that than me. But it seems to me, just from a logic point of view, from the old adage, you can take a horse to water, yeah. um, but you can't make them drink. And they're not going to drink until they're thirsty. Hitting them with a stick isn't going to make them drink either. You know. Well, I we find that you know we certainly don't have a problem um, going to the ICC if we have an issue. You know where we have tried to work with the excavator and continue to see um, that they you know have a disregard for their own personal safety and the safety of their 
the folks on their team, um, then we will take that proactive measure to to go to the ICC to to try to work with them. And oftentimes, yeah, when you're hitting them in the pocketbook, unfortunately, that's what seems to matter the most. Yeah. Um, not not that their folks can be killed or injured on the job. Um, it's what the bottom line is. And so a lot of times folks also build into their cost of doing business the cost of hitting these lines you know i mean it's it seems i guess maybe cost effective to them um i don't know what well i do know what the cost of is uh, you know when you have a death on on the job site that is going to break you um yeah. so i wish more excavators would uh look through that lens uh the lens of safety as opposed to you know just the cost of doing business but yeah we don't we don't have a problem going you know, going after a contractor that we don't believe is working within the best interest of the of their the folks on their team. So um, again, unfortunately, that's sometimes what gets their attention. And you know, we look at the ICC as kind of like the IRS. You you don't want them flying around your job site all the time, right? Um, you don't want them looking over your shoulder constantly like OSHA, um, but they will. You know, if they find a, an offender who continually um, doesn't uh, put the safety of their employees first, uh, that's the first job site they're going to go to to ensure that they are compliant. And those are the first job sites that we go to as well. We, we tend to um, audit randomly. However, we are looking at those um, those uh, habitual offenders, those repeat offenders, and we're making sure we're stopping in at their job sites. We're making sure so that we don't, you know, just continue to beat them with a stick, right? We want to show them what they're doing right on their job site, show them, you know, that we're here to help. Uh, we're here to help you. We're here to help with the success um, of your um, job. So that's really what we want to see is we want to see everybody go home at the end of the day. And, it, and if you're hitting lines overhead or underground, you know, the odds are working against you. Right. And so we you're saying back to, sorry, yeah, I was just thinking back to what, what Cliff was saying. You know, it's a two-way conversation when you're educating them rather than just finding them. So there's stuff for us to learn on our side as well, as far as root causes go and where can we better educate people and what, you know, what, how can we incentivize safety for them by, by talking to those guys that are habitual offenders, we're actually learning a little bit too about where the problems are. Well, I was going to mention, you know, for, in terms of, uh, you know, we've been talking about the procedural elements of, of not requesting a locator damages and, and it becomes almost mathematical, but there's a very human element. To this and you know cliff I, if you can i'd like you to talk about that i mean this is something that obviously you've lived through yourself uh and you've met people that have experienced this whether it was a, a severe injury or even a fatality and the effects on their families and you know this it never goes away no it's it's a lifetime event i mean uh, on a personal standpoint for me you know i i wake up every morning and and deal with especially as i'm getting i don't want to say older more seasoned <laughs> in life <laughs> uh, you know things creep up on you and, and things like that i was very fortunate and all that but i think that the bottom of the line is is that when you go back and you talk about all this stuff with enforcement and all of that, and then you dip into, you know, the cultural element of it, you got to really look at this as a behavioral standpoint because, you know, cultures are families and uh, companies need to have profits. I mean, that's why they're in business, right? But your biggest asset are your employees, like Kelly is mentioning. Yes. You want to make sure everybody comes to work and goes home to their family in the same condition. And the thing about it is, is that it's a mindset change. 
And that's what we need to do. And that's why it's such a behavioral standpoint, because uh, I mean, do these people send their families out to get injured uh, out on a car accident? Nobody wants that at all whatsoever. So I think that the constant reinforcement of being able to show everybody how important not only your workers are, but building that culture uh, hopefully, uh, one of these days we'll, uh, you know, remove that element of having incidents on the work site. Because uh, if you have an injury out there, or let alone somebody gets severely injured or there's a death, I mean, it, it trickles down. I mean, these your employees hold that and harbor that stuff, you know, for the rest of their lives. They'll always remember that guy on the job site that they had such a connection with. Uh, you know, we bond with people, we learn from people, uh, and that's how our cultures work. And when you have fractures in it. Uh, it, it could be a detrimental thing emotionally. Yeah. yeah, and if I could just add to that, Cliff, it, it starts with the leadership of the com company, right? So yes. when we do find these these crews that are out there, um, you know, acting unsafely uh, in their in their excavation practices, we're going to reach out to their safety director. We're going to reach out to the the ownership of the company to, you know, maybe they're not aware that their crews are out there doing this. So this is an opportunity for us to speak not only to the person that has the shovel in their hand, but also the person that's laying out, you know, what the expectations are for for their crews, right? Their safety expectations. So we want to get in and we want to speak with the company as a whole and, um, you know, um, complete some awareness training for them. Yeah, very important. The, the person that's doing the digging and the person that's reading the financial statements are equally as important. They just have different roles. The culture has got to be a one for all type of culture that everybody is just as important as anybody else's out there. And you got to promote that. And it takes an enormous amount of work. I want to just move over to thank you. I want to move over to Cookie for a moment. I'd be remiss if we didn't spend a little bit of time talking about look up and live. Uh, Cookie, if you could just take the, the podium here for a bit and tell us what you've been able to do with the Look Up and Live app in Australia, in Queensland, and how that has been a game changer and how it can be available, not only in Australia, but anywhere. Yeah, I suppose uh, Cliff touched on it before. It's, it's about teaching the why, you know what I mean? It, we, we sort of train people and we, you know, we have all the exclusion zones and use of safety observers and stuff like that. It's teaching people that they're a human and it's easy to miss those overhead power lines. So like I said, we're able to, to generate that publicly available data now and the, the businesses, the, the power line owners or, or utilities have to commit to putting their um, data in a public space so people can actually plan. Uh, but, but doing that, has drastically reduced incidents. Just gives people that ability to to look uh, themselves and have a bit of a, a you know a good look around and come up with that plan. Uh, not opening overhead, but underground as well. So in Queensland, we've we've included our underground cables. So uh, certified locators here in in Queensland, they absolutely love the look up and live app because they can find where the cable starts and terminates and then they can join the dots for the for for their clients so uh and then you know we got to a point where people kept on ringing me and say oh, i can't find your look up and live app and i said well it's not an app it's at lookupandlive.com um and then i went back to my business and said we need an app because i needed an app form and they basically said you don't you don't have a budget so good luck and uh i must have been saying app around my phone too much because uh Facebook popped up and said, build your own app, $147. There's an app that builds apps. So um, we basically went ahead and, 
and, and Mark Duran did a bit of a concept and, and, and I took it back to him. I said, look, it's actually not that difficult. And um, yeah, we, we, we ended up building a, an app and, and got it in the Apple Store and uh, Android um, or Google Play Store. That's a freely available. Um, you can go in and, and yeah, it could be an international tool moving forward. It just takes people uh, and, and utilities to, to get over the um, the fact that their data is publicly available. But for overheads um, power lines, you can walk down the street and find it. Um, yeah. It just gives, and, and the thing is that it tells people who owns the power line. So if you click on it, it, it tells you that the owner of the power line is here and this is how you interact with them. If, if you, you know, if you're three states over, well, you click on it, it tells you who owns it and how to interact interact with them. And it gives them the, the, the quick, easy link to the safety information that they need. I encourage you all to go and have a look at it. it. It obviously opens up in Australia, but it would be great one day when it opens up and you can pick the country, right? So, Well, exactly. And just a case in point, uh, Sask Power, Saskatchewan Power, one of the, the middle province that's really easy to draw in Canada, it's a square or a rectangle. Um, it, uh, they have adopted Look Up and Live. And uh, it's something that we are certainly looking at here in Alberta and uh, why not elsewhere? Uh, clearly, the the uh, the data is there. It works. So I, I encourage everybody to take a look. Um, we only have a few minutes left. But I, before we go, I, I want to ask a couple of related questions that came back. Um, going back to the click before you dig, um, shared. Do you find that work areas are smaller or notification areas are smaller when they are clicked rather than called? Oh, yes, much smaller. Um, one of the first things we noticed when we went live with our new, you know, map it yourself system uh, was a drop in notifications going out. And there was a lot of concern at the beginning. It was like, I'm not getting all these notifications anymore. What's happened? You know, is there something wrong with the system or this isn't safe or something like that? But the more we looked into it, the more <laughs> it was like, wow, they're just really exact in where they map because in the interest of safety, an agent who's guessing or unsure of what they're saying is going to draw a, a much larger polygon to represent the dig area to make sure they're including as many members as as necessary to be safe. Uh, whereas the excavator is not worried about how, who's underground here on my map. Um, it's just they know exactly where they're digging. I mean, they're going to map, whereas we would map three or four houses because we weren't sure which, which address was which perhaps in some areas where you don't have great mapping. Um, the excavator herself or a homeowner, for example, will go there and know exactly where that tree is going in. And he's going to map, you know, the little front part of his yard and and that's his polygon. And it's a valid polygon. It's He's not going to dig anywhere outside of that. Um, so yeah, and, and in effect, it's definitely reduced the number of notifications out and it's helping to take a bit of a burden off of the system, which is needed as it gets busier and busier. We need to find ways of taking the burden off utility owners from responding to all these requests because as they get backlogged, the system can collapse in on itself. It can't sustain itself and people will stop using it because they have to wait three weeks for a locate before they can dig. Yeah. They'll just stop doing it. I have uh, one more comment and perhaps a bit of a question as well before we're almost done here. Um, person writes that they've spent over 20 years in underground utility locating and they've heard that contractors are in, unfortunately including damage repairs in their bid. They're factoring that into their bid. 
Uh, also, potentially in uh, conjunction with a bonus for finishing projects early. Um, so they, they're rushing the job, they're factoring in repairs rather than perhaps locate delays or addressing that. Um, how, how are we how are we addressing that? I mean, we have our common ground alliance, regional partnerships, whether it's in the US or in Canada or anywhere else. There is utility locating coordinating councils. Uh, there are a variety of committees that we, we reach around to all stakeholders to promote the damage prevention process and promote that communication. And yet, you know, the digging community or the, the contractors, they are under uh, a gun in a sense that, you know, get the job done, make some money, move on. How do we address this? So what's the answer? I think the answer is education. I mean, you have to continue to educate these folks. Um, and, and I'll go back to my last comment. Yes, you know, we we believe that we see that too, that contractors are building that into their to, to their bid uh, for the job. I may hit X number of cables and that may be the situation, but are you factoring the cost of the death of one of your employees? I mean, that's really what it comes down to, because as I said, your um, your odds are against you. The more cables you hit, the more facilities you damage, the more the odds are against you. And so you're, you're looking at the tip of the iceberg, right? So you're just seeing the tip of the iceberg with the damages, but the next damage could be somebody's life. And it's going to be a significant injury or a fatality that's coming down the road. So are you prepared for that financially, emotionally, physically, mentally, all of the things that go along with that. And, and ultimately, you really can save money. If that's what your, if the, your bottom line is really what you're most concerned with, no damages is what's going to get you to the best possible uh, bottom line here, right? So yep, awareness, right. education, pre-planning, knowing what's in the ground, knowing what's above before you even bid the job. That's going to be your best opportunity to make the most money and to keep your folks safe on the job. Yeah. Well, what's what's driving that though? You have to think, okay, so as a contractor, I'm in competition with a bunch of other people bidding. So I'm going to factor in, you know, some hit lines and everything because I know they are as well. Um, but I have to keep that bid low. And that's my incentive is to give the lowest bid I can, but still do the job on time. So I'm going to bid as the fastest and the cheapest. Um, so what's driving that is the people that are hiring these people. So if cities make an incentive rather than be worried about how fast and how cheaply they get it done, why can't they start to in, in, include incentives in who's getting it done the safest? Who's yep, the safest exactly. company? You know, that I should be factoring yeah. in from the people hiring. I think that's a great idea, Cher, because we see a lot of times where the municipality gets engaged or involved in the claims process after the damage occurs as to who's at fault, who should be paying. You've got their constituents that have third party claims that went along with that damage, right? They damaged a power line and they had a surge event and they damaged every electronic piece of equipment, you know, in this homeowner's Businesses house. Businesses were down for hours. And right, exactly. I think that's a great idea by, you know, putting that out to to these municipalities that are, you know, and it's not just the municipalities, right, that, that that's calling yeah. for this work to be done. But yeah, I think that's a great idea, Cher. You know, yeah. I'll just, I'll just mention one thing in, a, in Australia oh, here. Um, we have industrial manslaughter laws now. So um, a CEO of a company could go to jail uh, if, if a fatality occurs under his watch and, and basically 
the coroner will look at it and if they find that the company's culture was toxic, um, they can go to jail now. And there's, there's one incident here in Queensland where it's the first case for industrial manslaughter uh, from electrocution with a mobile crane. Um, so yeah, someone can go to jail and maximum fine is $11 million. So, wow. Ouch. Yep. Yeah, and, and one, I just go ahead, Cliff. Yeah, go sorry ahead. about that. One last comment on that on this subject matter uh, with all the panelists. I mean, uh, great feedback and all that. The, and I think on a very simplistic note, and my personal experience on this is that you know you're kind of accepting this feat if you're pricing that in your model. Uh, so you know, how do you back yeah. out of that? I had a personal experience where I was working on a large project, and uh, there were many different interviewing with going on with all the different contractors that were there as they were placing the bid. And one of these companies had their safety officer there and he was sitting there and as they're introducing themselves, he's a safety officer. And you're asking, well, why is the safety officer there? And he says, well, because we're our theory in our cultures is to be 100% safe. And the reason why you're hiring us is because we work safe and we care about our people and we care about you as well. We want to get the job done quickly. Uh, and it was a very interesting concept, you know, how they did that because they didn't accept the feat. You know, they didn't price it in there. They were going to operate safe and be this yes. operate as safely as possible. So I thought that was kind of an interesting concept. And it kind of was like the buy in tool for me. It was like, all right, there you go. <laughs> they won. Yep. Yeah. One of the things we're, we're working to implement here in, in Alberta, and it's, it's done elsewhere. We're not the first ones to do this by any means, but we want to be able to recognize um the for example the excavator of the year the member of the year the locator of the year uh, through data and uh, this goes to Cher's point about you know we need to recognize safety we need to recognize those who are leaders in safety and in terms of securing contracts if if we are to recognize the excavator of the year for example and you know they they had x number of locate requests put in they had no damages reported into dirt they're, they're registered with dirt and, and a, a variety of other data that identifies them as a good operator their name now is up in lights as a responsible uh whether it's utility owner whomever is hiring that excavator that digging contractor they're going to look at that now that person that or that company is going to have more demand for their services Everybody else who looks at them as losing bids to that company because they're a safe work operator is going to have to up their game. So by recognizing and awarding, in a sense, the, the safe operators, I believe that over time, you're going to have a better industry, whether it's a, the excavator of the year, the locator of the year. It, it begins to shift that that view as, you know, we're going to we're going to hit you with the with a stick, but here's the carrot and the carrot is so much better. Right. Sure. When you're so, thinking about, you know, it'd be easy for someone to say, oh, it's just an award. You know, you're going to put a plaque on the wall and no one's going to know about it. No one's going to care. It's not going to have any impact. We have 870, I don't know, some over 870 members or utility owners who hire contractors to do work on their own lines all the time. They're going to pay attention to who's the safe excavator of the year. They're really going to notice that. Mm hmm. Oh, yes. It's yep. powerful. It is. So we're uh, about seven minutes over our time. Um, I'm going to ask Whitney to join us here in a moment. But before I do that, uh, if I don't get the chance later, I just want to thank you guys for having me as your moderator today. Um, really appreciate your time and love having the chance to interact with all of you. Look forward to doing it again 
with uh, in person sometime soon. So <laughs> yeah. I'll ask Whitney to join to come back into the the discussion. All right. Well, thank you, Mike. Um, since we're at time, if you would like to stay on for just a few extra minutes, um, we'll have a short kind of coffee and question session to address any additional questions you might have. On behalf of everyone at Infrastructure Resources, I would like to thank all the attendees and those who shared their thoughts and solutions today. Also, a huge thank you to our moderator and panelists for sharing their knowledge and insight on this topic. A recording of the town hall will be posted on excavationsafetyalliance.com where you will also be able to register for next month's town hall on October 10th, titled, What Role Can Utility Coordinating Councils Play in Damage Prevention and Excavation Safety? You'll be receiving a survey link for this town hall, and we would appreciate your feedback so we can continue to improve and make these valuable for you. Please consider joining us in Tampa, Florida, February 14th through the 16th, 2023, for the Global Excavation Safety Conference, where we will have additional discussions and a wide variety of educational opportunities. And as a first-time attendee, you can take advantage of our 811 special, which is more than 30% off of the current rate. And you can do that by going to globalexcavationsafetyconference.com to register yourself or your team. We will now continue for those who would like to stay on for a few extra minutes with our brief coffee and question session. And Mike, I will now turn it over to you. Thanks very much, Whitney. Um, as you may have guessed, I've had some challenges technology-wise. I was not able to log in with my laptop, so I'm doing this by my phone, giant hands and all. And um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm not seeing all the questions and comments, and thanks to Whitney and the team for forwarding those off to me. Are there any additional questions, or if, if, if there aren't, maybe some additional last words from our panelists? I'm not seeing any questions coming to me right now, so, uh, oh, here we have a question. Hold on. I can't see it. Liar. <laughs> I'm not able to see it, so when it does come to me, I'll, I'll, I'll ask the question, but uh, Cookie, any last words you'd like to provide? Uh, I was just going to mention I, I'm, I'm looking forward to trying to to get to the um, the conference, but I'm thinking I'm going to have to start up a GoFundMe or something, mate, to get to get there. Because <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm I'm struggling to convince my business that uh, I need to go to Florida, to be honest. So <laughs> I'll have to see how I go. But yeah, in the end, I might have to pay for myself. But I really want to get there to um to because I think we do it well the the overhead stuff here, but I think we've still got a lot to learn. Uh, from you guys in North America about um, underground infrastructure, to be honest. So. Thank you. Uh, Whitney, I saw somebody had their hand raised and I can't see who that is. Are you able to unmute them and have them ask their question? Yeah. There he is. There he is. There he is. <laughs> hey guys, I'm a damage prevention specialist in Louisiana for Atmos Energy. My question is this um, although I believe heavily in education, um, I feel like we have been educating through all the best programs in the world. Programs that you guys have mentioned. More programs. We're, we're, we're educated. And we're educating the excavators. And they're educated. We, we have to finally come to a spot in life, even with all the innovation and technology that we have, we have to come to a spot where we have to say that education is not working. It, it is working and, and we have the results. We have proof. But where do we where do we come and draw the line? This question is for for all you guys and uh, really enjoyed the segment today. 
I'll shut off. Thank you. I can jump in on that really quick, Raymond. That's a great question. You know, I sit on uh, as a member of the enforcement panel for 811 Chicago, and their stick is not only through fining, but they will take away your license, wherein you will not dig in the city of Chicago any longer. So I think that, you know, there kind of has to be, you're right, there has to be a line in the sand where you continue to educate, you try to work with these contractors, they're not, you know, complying, um, you report them, they pay the fine, and as I saw somebody on here said, that's just a drop in the bucket for some of these, you know, multi-million dollar jobs. Um, a couple thousand dollar fine really is, is nothing to them. Um, so yeah, I, I agree that they're, does there need to be higher fines? Maybe. Um, is that going to solve the problem? I don't know. I mean, are they just going to charge more on their bid? Is it it's just going to continue to go upward? So I liked the city of Chicago's stance in that, you know, we're, we're going to work with you. We're going to fine you. We're going to make sure that you go through mandatory training. And when you still can fail to comply, you know, we've got no choice for your own safety to but to pull your license from you to not allow you to work in this vicinity. And um, that really has changed the tune of any of the contractors that have gone through that program. Thank you. For Raymond, I'd like to add to that uh, on another standpoint. I mean, as uh, Kelly had mentioned, you know, we've got the enforcement uh, part of it. And, you know, we always want to continuously educate when all possible but i think that you know this kind of you know in my personal expertise and all of that i think it's the emotional appeal i mean ultimately at the end of the day uh, and and that's why i always like to speak to boots on the ground and all that because you can really you know hit the hearts of those people on how and why it's so important to be able to work safe out there uh, it's it's beyond uh, the education it's the emotional side and the behavioral standpoint behind that and and you know, we just got to keep hitting after it and and do the best that we possibly can that's, that's a great point, Cliff. Um, it, you, Cliff. it really is. To change safety behaviours, you have to instill fear. You have to instill those feelings of self-worth or getting home to family to change behaviours. And then to actually complete all that, you need something easy. And that's where the sort of look up and live apps sort of work <coughs> for the people that I'm speaking to, because I, I do all that and we talk about the why. You know, we talk about training and education. We, we just sort of, you know, it's all one way. Whereas if you can convince someone the why of, of, of how they're doing it because of human factors, uh, you, you can change behavior. So yeah, really good point, mate. And that, that's what I draw on in all my presentations is, you know, this stuff, if it gets you, you, you're severely maimed for life or you're not here anymore. So who's gonna be there for your family? I have a question here. Uh, has utility safety partners contacted IS NetWorld or Alberta Construction Safety Association to make changes to safety audits for audit for sorry for compliance audits required with some work sites? Uh, we have not. However, we are working closely with the Alberta Energy Regulator, and uh, when they do their various inspections and audits, they are looking to make sure that certain elements uh, of our uh, user agreement with individual members is is uh, being conformed with. For example, that they're something as simple as updating their, their data on an annual basis or confirming their data on an annual basis, uh, and that they're a member in good standing, that they've paid their fees. But this is opening the door to exactly that. Can, you know, and we talk about best practices, at some point, a best practice can evolve to a standard or even legislation or regulation. And I do believe that this is opening the door to potentially uh, 
improving or enhancing regulation and maybe through the through IS net world or something like that. I don't think we have any further questions. I think um, Gary Smith, oh, sorry. I, is, I just saw a note that says Gary Smith, you can now unmute. Oh, there he is. Yes, thank there you. There he is. Um, I hey, just, Gary. thanks everyone here and uh, this was great, but um, I am from a small utility in uh, Southern Alberta here, but just to go off of what Kelly said, um, in the past, I have denied contractors um, access to bids um, within the city of Lethbridge here, and it goes ac across the whole municipality. So whether it's electric, water, whatever, those contractors are no allow not allowed to bid, and the procurement is notified, so they can submit, but their bid's um, dis disposed of. And then we have the conversations of what it's going to take to get them back to where they will be able to bid. And being a small community of contractors around us, that that word went around very quickly and guys started paying attention to what they're doing. Um, we're pretty fortunate with our hits around here. The only other thing I wanted to say is what we started implementing within our own department is um, changing the culture of our employees to be aware. So we we stopped a pretty significant hit last year where an employee was driving by he saw a contractor working he got out and said hey do you know there's high voltage cables underneath you do you have locates well they had locates but the company didn't give them to the the operator which is pretty much mandatory here right they're supposed to be on site so <clears throat> within our own organization here we have our own inspectors so they put a stop work order on them we got OHS involved, Occupational Health and Safety. They came out and put a stop work order on until they complied to everything that was needed between OHS and ourselves, and then and then got them going and working. We're not there to prevent them from completing their job, but making sure they're working safely. So, I going back to what Cliff said: the boots on the ground, having your your own employees paying attention, um, can prevent these incidents and accidents. So. I just wanted to throw my two cents in there. And again, thanks so much, everyone. Um, greatly appreciated. Thank you, Gary. Thank you. Excellent point. Thanks, Gary. I, I do have another question. Um, auto accidents reported to insurance databases and affects the ability to get insurance. What about reporting damages to insurance carriers to affect the habitual contractors? That's a good, it's a very good point, actually. And it, it's something that years ago when I was working for the federal regulator for transmission pipelines here in Canada, I brought that up. So why are we not even just copying an insurance provider uh, for a, 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 an, an excavating contractor? Just say, FYI, this guy has done this, a repeat offender, whatever. I remember my the board of directors at the time, and I don't know if this is still their position, but at the time this was their position, that we are not in the business of putting people out of business. And, and that, what, that blew me away uh, back then. I don't know if that's still the case. Now, for... Uh, a notification center like Utility Safety Partners or a Common Ground Alliance Regional Partner, whatever you have you, this is a very challenging area because then you can get into a lawsuit defamation of character. But it is an excellent point uh, for perhaps a, uh, you know, I can reach out to you, Kelly, uh, you know, working with the, um, the, the, the people that you do in terms of enforcement, has that ever been contemplated? Um, no, I don't think it has. You know, I think it depends on whether or not the um, excavator turns that into their insurance company. And we 
when we go to invoice somebody for a damage, we're going to invoice the excavator that caused the damage. Then it's really up to them to determine whether or not they want to utilize their insurance company based on their, you know, um, deductible or whatever the case may be. So um, we don't always have that information up front as to who their insurance carrier might be. So we don't know. We don't normally go that route. I think it's an interesting route, though, because, yeah, you're right. Just like your auto insurance, you know, if you're a, um, a repeat offender, they're less likely to either insure you at all or they're going they're more likely to increase your rate. So, you know, your cost of business is continually going up right with everything that yeah, you're doing. Yeah. And so your best within your best interest is to just go ahead and comply. Right. And, and work safely out there. So but I think that's an interesting an interesting question and an interesting point. When it comes to fines here in Australia, sorry guys, <laughs> for the fines you, you can't claim it on insurance, right? So there's uh, there was a lot of people and people just considering it an accident. Whereas if you've got legislation in place that says you know there's a fine and it's a breach of legislation, well insurance companies shouldn't be paying for it, right? So it certainly changed the behaviour. Uh, as well as those industrial manslaughter laws here in Australia. But in Queensland in particular, uh, yeah, those fines, it, they can't be paid by insurance. So it's coming out of someone's pocket. When it's a large civil contractor or something like that, like $6,600 not a lot of money. But when it's a smaller operator, like Kelly just said, $6,600, that's a lot of money. So uh, it's certainly changing behaviour. So I get a lot more uh, interaction with um, some of the larger uh, civil construction companies because they they usually use subcontractors and surprise surprise the subcontractors are the ones that cause the damage mostly you know bigger companies that have you know staff that have been there for years they love their job and they'll follow the procedures it's the subcontractors that take the shortcuts sorry go ahead. one of the what I wanted to say before we we're getting pretty close to the end here but there is another question about you know can we educate the insurance companies that is actually insurance is, is a stakeholder category group on the common ground alliance um it's a very challenging group to reach out to i know here in alberta with the regional partner for the common ground alliance there have been a lot of efforts to bring insurance companies into the cga um cga nationally in the u.s there when i was on the board there was insurance i believe there still is the Canadian Common Ground Alliance, we, it's a stakeholder category, but we have not been successful in securing a representative for insurance. Um, it definitely is part of the solution. It definitely is part of the formula, if you will, uh, for enforcement. I know that awareness enforcement ladder, but it's a very challenging group to, to bring in. Whitney, I don't think we have any more questions or comments that I can see. Um, nope, I think we are good. Okay. Once again, uh, thank you to Infrastructure Resources and the staff there for facilitating and creating these town hall sessions. They've been very successful. I, uh, yeah, thank you. A round of applause would be great for Whitney and, and Mike and, and Levi and everybody else with Infrastructure Resources. Thank you again to our panel members. Um, really enjoyed doing this. Uh, didn't keep me up at night before the night before. I slept really well last night, so you you had my back, and I really appreciate that. Um, I'll see you all again soon. I hope. And uh, until then, call and click before you dig. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everyone. All right. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Safe. <laughs>